Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 111 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Velasco, coming to you from sunny but freezing Chicago, USA. As we record this, it's just after the new year, so happy holidays, everyone, wherever you are. Hey there, Ugo, how are you? Well, I'm not my best. You can probably hear from my voice. Uh, you know, it's freezing there. It's not freezing here, but I managed to get a cold anyway. And it's been going on since the New Year's Day, basically. I, I got up on New Year's Day with a, with a nasty cold, just starting to recover. So, <laughs> yeah, all is good. Aside from that, it will tomorrow will be better, of course. All right. Well, you take care of yourself. And uh, so, um, so I'd like to introduce our guest this week. Ali Dale, who started his photographic career aboard a cruise ship in 2001. Uh, when he returned to New Zealand in 2003, he set himself up as a freelance photographer and in 2005 started his company, Photo NZ Limited. In 2008, he joined the, the New Zealand Institute of Professional Photography, was the chairman of the Auckland region from 2009 to 2010 and a part of the Honors Council from 2010 to 2015. In that time, he achieved the level of Fellow of the NZIPP and has judged at the Professional Photography Awards in New Zealand and Australia. His clients over the years have included many household names, the largest of which are Mazda, Microsoft, Vodafone, Flight Center, and the Auckland Airport. Ali now works two days a week at the Auckland Airport, creating photo and video content for their social channels and for all sorts of corporate communications, which uh, sounds really cool to me. Uh, the original Virtually Famous was a title for a small documentary he created in 2012, all about how social media was changing the landscape for photographers and everyone. He interviewed a number of people who influenced him and asked them about how they use social media to grow their brands, interact with followers, and become virtually famous. We'll certainly provide a link in the show notes to that documentary, but welcome to the show, Ollie. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, how's the weather there? Is it summer in New Zealand, right? It, it is summer in New Zealand, but we've just been hit by a storm. Um, which is typical because we are a Pacific island, even though a moderately large one. Um, and so our weather can change at any moment. But um, just when you think summer's getting underway and everyone heads off camping, this massive storm comes through and people are running home as quickly as they can. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we are on three different continents and there's all kinds of storms happening on each of our continents. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh... Well, your name recently came to our attention when we saw it being featured in association with the Lost Clipper Project, which we will yeah. put a, a link uh, in the show notes to. Uh, tell us more about this project, would you? Sure. Um, it's, it's one of those stories that 
um, sort of goes on and on. So it's hard to know where to start. But I'll start with Trey Ratcliffe. And the reason I do that is because he hired me to go to America with him on a uh, three-week trip where he traveled from New York to Los Angeles via Chicago and Miami on a bus. And it was a fantastic opportunity for me because every couple of years I seem to get this trip uh, overseas. Um, and, and in 2015, that was this one. And I got to video him and his crew um, and everything that they did in all of these different cities. We went to 11 cities in um, 19 days, I think was the record, which was madness because we would turn up at a, at a city. We would meet everyone who turned up to, to be part of his event. Um, I'd, I'd film the event, which would go through till probably 11 o'clock at night. Then I'd edit all night and would and would post by 7 a.m., 8 a.m. the next morning, and then I might have maybe three hours sleep and we'd arrive at the next city and we'd do it all again. So it was crazy. But in uh, Washington, D.C., I uh, had set myself up with a, a Steadicam, a Ronin, and a backpack that I'd built for myself. Um, rather than spending $2,500 on a support rig, I spent 100 bucks and built my own. And, um, and a guy came up to me and said, Hey man, you know what? What's this get up? And that was basically the the opener for a conversation between myself and a man called Guy Nofsinger. And Guy is uh, a retired, well, no, an ex naval intelligence officer. Uh, as it turns out, I didn't know that at the time. Um, and he's picked up a project called the Lost Clipper. And the Clipper is a Hawaii Clipper that went missing in 1938. Um, Pan American had three Clippers, and they were basically revolutionary at the time they they had four engines and the technology was the most advanced propeller technology ever so um, uh, of course excuse my ignorance because maybe i'm not a native english speaker but when i think of a clipper i think of a sailboat yes um and and it was to those sailboats that it referenced um because what they did is they they island hopped from um california around to hong kong Yeah, but I mean, this was a plane. This was a plane. It was. A, it was sorry, a, a, sorry for asking, but no, 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 no. no that's some, fine. Not, that's a good question. Not English speakers, <laughs> I think it was a sailboat. Or yeah, yeah, clipper, yeah, yeah. The clippers were obviously, um, but I think this was a reference, a hark back to them, um, and it was a seaplane, so it would, it would, it could land anywhere. It would just island hop, and in 1938, um, between Guam and Manila, uh, it disappeared. And a couple of hours later, when the, the radio people figured out that actually this plane wasn't coming back, um, they sent out a whole bunch of search parties, and they never, ever found a trace of this plane, ever. Um, 15 people on board. There were 13 um, white people, one Asian and one Hispanic, and they were all American citizens. And um, I think nine of them were crew, and six of them were the, were the passengers that hadn't got off in Hawaii. Uh, and they were on their way to Hong Kong. Um, and so this plane just disappeared. And that's kind of where the story ended there. Um, they did a whole lot of searching, never found a scrap of the plane. Then in sometime in the early 1960s, a guy was traveling through the Pacific looking for Amelia Earhart. And he turned up to an island called uh, Truk Island. It used to be spelt T-R-U-K, but it's since been corrected to the native C-H-U-U-K. Um, I actually went there on the cruise ship in 2001, but I wasn't allowed to get off 
because it was my port duty. Um, every four stops, you have to stay on the ship. So I got to see it, but I never got off. But um, he came to this island and he showed the photo of Amelia Earhart and her plane to the to the people who lived there and said, "Have you seen this woman?" And they all kind of sat around scratching their heads, saying, "No, don't don't remember her. Don't don't think we've ever seen her." Oh, but there were these fifteen bodies we buried over here. And the guy didn't know the story of the clipper at the time. Um, and so he just took a photo of the spot that they had pointed to. And when he printed that out, of course, you didn't write on the back at the time or add notes in your phone like we do now. He had to, of course, print this out in the darkroom. And he wrote on the back, 15 people buried here. Um, and then he'd written 13 whites, one Asian and one dark guy in adverted commas. And he didn't know the story, so it didn't mean anything to him. But some someone in the 1980s was going through his notes and came across this photo that he'd printed out and and the note on the back and suddenly went hold on that sounds like the people who were on the clipper and so since the 80s there's been a search of sorts going on for this plane um guy picked it up in the early 2000s maybe 2001 um and has been working on this project ever since he's been there three times already and the last time he was there he, he did actually get to dig on this location but he'd run out of time because the plane that picks you up and drops you off comes through once a week and he'd been there for five days negotiating with the locals as to whether or not he could dig. And they finally came up with a fee of several thousand dollars, which he paid. And then they let him dig, but that left him only with two days. So he kind of ran out of time. So he's come back, and that was over a year ago now. He's come back, he's, he's built a, a crew together. He's taking myself to document the entire thing. And also um, a guy who's a specialist in ground penetrating radar. So the, he... He's a specialist using that equipment in finding bodies. So it'll be really interesting to work alongside someone like that. Um, and one of the guys from the DEA Narcos show on Netflix um, as the, the face of this whole thing. And so we're going to be there for about a week um, filming interviews with the locals, with the, with the crew, with Guy, obviously, who's done all the research. And um, if they find the bodies, this is, this is the interesting bit. If they find the bodies, it kind of points to a, a um, conspiracy theory that has grown since the 80s that Japan wanted the plane for its technology. And or there was also a guy on board that had $3 million worth of gold certificates, but that's kind of neither here nor there, really. Um, so maybe one of those two reasons was a reason for someone to hijack the plane. But if this is a hijacking it rewrites the history books as the earliest hijacking ever. Um, it also kicks off um, a couple of large institutions have shown an interest in making a feature-length documentary and sinking millions of dollars into it. Um, and Guy has also had several Hollywood um, directors and producers approach him for the for the story rights. So it really is the the tipping point for a massive undertaking that will that will kick off should he find these bodies of course there's also living relatives of these people who would love to know where they got to um but a lot of his evidence points to the fact that this is the spot and he's spending a lot of his own money getting us there and and, and capturing it and it's kind of scary to think that that it's all on my shoulders <laughs> to to create all these images but at the same time what what an opportunity what a what a great project to to have this random call. So the, the hark back to Trey Ratcliffe was the first time I met this guy was in Washington, D.C. And he just calls me about six weeks ago and says, hey, 
I've been following you on on um, social media and watching your posts and 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 I really want you to come and and be the guy filming this. And I said, why me? And he said, oh, you were really kind to me when you met me, and I thought I really liked you. So so that's it. <laughs> so there we go. At the end of end of January, I'm heading over to Micronesia for a week. It takes two days to get there, even though it's not far from where I live. It's just so remote that um, I spend 16 hours in two airports on 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 the way. But uh, um, so yeah, it's going to be a fantastic trip, and hopefully by the beginning of February we will have discovered 15 bodies in a remote Pacific island. Fascinating story. That is. Boy, you just never know who you're going to meet, right? Yeah, yeah, or what that <laughs> or might what turn kind, into. Yeah, exactly. What kind of opportunity that might turn into? That's fantastic. <laughs> um, well, yeah, you, you you started your photographic career aboard cruise ships. Yeah. Tell us about that, and is that a good way to see the world and to uh, take photos, I imagine? <laughs> I, I have a, lots, lots of photographic opportunities. I have a bit of a tainted view of the cruise ship industry. I, I was in London at the time. I saw an ad, and you, you don't get these opportunities from New Zealand. It's too remote. Um, but there was an ad in the local paper that said, cruise ship photographers wanted, and I was like, yeah, I'll apply for that. And I had I had always had photography as a as a hobby and an interest. And my dad was a, a photojournalist, so I grew up with that. But um, I went along to this to this day where they teach you about what it's like to be a, a photographer, and then they give you a maths and an English exam. And apparently, I scored well enough in both of those that they offered me the job on the spot. Um, you also had to take along your photos of what you had been shooting, so they knew that I could shoot. Um, and I got flown over to Miami. Uh, we spent a week there being trained, and then they put me on a cruise ship. And that was kind of where the support stopped from this particular company. And I was dropped off in Barcelona on a cruise ship where there was one other photographer. It was a six-star Radisson line ship. And um, <laughs> it just ended up not being as as glamorous as, as it sounds. Um, there was only two of us. My contract was for 6% commission. His contract was for 9%. So in total, 15% of whatever was made on the ship through the photographic team went to the team. I think about 50% went to the cruise ship and the remainder went to paying for chemicals to print your negatives and, and your photos because they were still printing um, and using darkroom and, and using film. Um, so there wasn't much money in it. And this particular ship was I don't know it had just had a refit out or something and and it just wasn't all that full and so I spent four months going around the world and sure I got to go to some amazing places like uh, Central America I went through the Panama Canal three times um, and that had always <clears throat> actually been something I'd wanted to do uh, just because it sounded cool um, but I got to see a lot of the the ports of the world we didn't often get to get off and go and enjoy because um, we got to Papua New Guinea, we were there for four hours. We got to Truk Lagoon, we were there for six hours. You know, I got to Tokyo and I had to stay on board. It was, it, you kind of felt a little trapped. Um, when we went from LA to Hawaii, it was a good five or six days at sea. And when I was at sea, I had to sit in the Photoshop pretending to sell film to people who had just bought themselves digital cameras for Christmas. So there was, it was a kind of a, a strange little universe to live in. Had I been put on a Disney ship where there was 13 staff photographers and, and people bought every photo you took because they had the photos of their kids, um, then I would have made a lot of money. But on this ship, it was aimed at the very rich 
and the very rich all had digital cameras. So I made nothing. There was a three-day cruise from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas and back where I took potentially one of the shots of my life. Um, but I earned $9.44 for three days of work, and that was kind of 18 hours a day. Uh, so it, it really did turn me off <laughs> wanting to be a cruise ship photographer, so I only lasted four months. But it did kick me into that career of loving photography, having having some work that I could then show a guy who could then gave me a job as a sports photographer here in Auckland. So that's kind of how I started. Is it a good idea? If you get on the right ship, if you get with the right crew, if you get with the right boss, I'm sure it would be amazing. I know people who've done it for years, but there's potentially better ways of doing it, getting into photography. Let me ask you this, because uh, when I first started uh, my photography career, that was uh, something that I wanted to do was to actually teach photography on cruise ships. And this probably would have been 2005, 2006. And when I really started to look into it, uh, the, the only pay was the, a free room. Uh, and there, there wasn't anything else that you got other than a free place to stay. And mm -hmm. so to me, that didn't sound like a, a very good deal. Were they, uh, providing you accommodations as well as this <laughs> six to 9% or if what? you can, if you can call sharing a shoebox with another six foot two giant, like myself, uh, accommodation, then yeah, they, they gave you that. Uh, we were on the waterline, we were crew, we had very little. The only reason I got to interact with the customers was because that was part of my job. But literally, people would get on a ship, they would have traveled however many hours to get there and carried all their gear up the gangplank. So when they reached the top of the gangplank, they looked and felt the worst they'd ever felt. And there I was with my camera saying, welcome aboard, have a photo. <laughs> and it was just not fun. Um, the, I did, the way that it was structured, I didn't work for the, for the cruise line. I worked for a company that provided photographers to cruise lines. And that was where I kind of lost any negotiation or any, any benefit. Um, there, were, there were crew on board that got better pay that, and, and sort of facilities than I did. Um, but I was an outsider, I was a contractor, and my company made a squillion dollars off the back of providing photographers to cruise ships around the world. And it meant that the cruise ships didn't have to go through that process. They don't know about photography. They don't know what makes a good photographer or how to train them. Um, so they just brought in, they brought in the, the, the makeup people and the massage therapists. And pretty much the best job on a cruise ship would be entertainment because you get to hang out with the customers and have a drink with them. I was there to take a photo. Once I'd taken the photo, I had to scram and I wasn't allowed to be around them. So it was really restrictive and, and quite nasty as far as humanity goes. They really don't treat you very very well on, on some of those cruise ships. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, teaching photography on a cruise ship would be awesome, but I could see why they wouldn't have any money for it. It's because people get on the cruise ship. They've already paid for the cruise. They want everything for free. Um, and especially on the cruise ship I was on, that's what they got. They had pools, they had they had bars, they had all sorts of stuff. And pretty much you paid for your drink and that was the only extra that you had. So I, I don't think a cruise ship is the best idea um, for getting into a photographic career. If you want a free trip, sure, spend six months teaching photography and go around the world. That would be awesome. But you've got to have your own your own sort of income outside of that. So after... Spending four months confined on a cruise ship. Well, not really, but <laughs> you, you decided to take to the sky at some point. 
Yeah. Then getting to aerial photography, aerial videography. Can you explain a little bit of the background of that? Yeah, well, that actually is a step further along the road. I, I got into the stills photography when I got home, and I spent probably seven, eight years just as a stills photographer. But then when the, the 5D Mark II came out, I suddenly picked up video because I was getting a little stale on the photos. The corporate photography was a bit boring. Um, it, it was paying the bills just, but it wasn't inspiring me. But um, then this video idea came along and suddenly I had more to learn. And what I found when I started learning video is that it's like going from two dimensions to three dimensions. Your your moment is no longer 125th of a second. It's 10 minutes or two hours or whatever your moment is in video. You need to have multiple cameras because if the person you're videoing sneezes, you've got to be able to cut that out without making it look like it's been cut out. You know, like this, the, you've got to understand sound and how sound changes and how sound is affected by the room you're in and how light changes over that period of, like it's just so much to learn when it comes to video. So I was off again, I was learning, I was teaching myself and I loved it. So I really dove into the video um, idea and I tried in our local community to get more professional photographers interested by adding a video category to our national awards um, but sadly after winning it three times in a row they canned, they canned the category so um, I've always been into the video idea of photography since since that 5D Mark II came out then along came drones and I'd, I'd used some kind of second hand in the sense that I was on some film crews where they were using massive big drones with really expensive cameras and when the, the DJI Inspire came out, that was the moment that I was like, oh, now I've got everything I need in a package. It's easy to fly. And the, the, the landscape, so to speak, in New Zealand was, was ripe for being able to fly a drone. And New Zealand's actually really progressive when it comes to drone laws. So um, we very quickly, in fact, the, the, the aviation law we already had already kind of had a provision where they just lumped us in with, with um, remote control planes that had been around for years. So, so we already had a framework with which to structure the law, and that made it really easy. Um, they have since tightened it in certain areas and loosened it in others, but it just meant that being a drone operator in New Zealand at that early stage, early so to speak, um, was, was a bit easy and you had the law on your side and it's not so scary to do it. And so it just meant that I was able to fly and I was able to find clients and Trey saw my work and said, come with me. And at that time in America, they hadn't quite tightened up their drone laws. So I, on that trip in 2015, I flew my drone in probably six or seven cities. And that was just such an opportunity because I wouldn't be able to do that now without a commercial pilot's license or some ridiculous kind of thing that you have to have in the States. So I was really lucky to have that timing at that, at that point. But I, I do love the idea of the, the floating camera, being able to shift my camera into a position that I, that I can't do from the, from the ground. And it just gives you, even when you're 20 feet up, it gives you a completely different look and feel. And so I was, I was just an early adopter and I was able to, to gain some clients through, through that, just being the guy with the drone and, and being the one game enough to go fly it. Now, Pretty much the only drone flying I do is out at the airport, but that's because no one else in the country is allowed to um, without going through a whole lot of jumping through hoops and, and red tape. So it's, it's more of a commercial sense, but I really enjoy the fact that I 
got seven phone numbers to call, including the police and the towers and all those sorts of things. But at the end of that, I can then fly my drone right up to the fence line of the airport, which is really exciting. So those regulations have changed quite a bit in New Zealand since you started doing this? Yeah, um, it was kind of like the aviation bodies sitting around scratching their heads going, uh, I don't know, how do we write rules for this? But when we started getting crazy stunts, people flying wherever they wanted, they, they, they realized that they needed to have some kind of regulation around it. Um, but a lot of people around the world have come to New Zealand to see how the New Zealand um, authorities have done it because it's actually really progressive and works really well. Um, and so we have what they call part 101, which is all the rules. And then they have part 102, which is if you need exemption from any of these rules, this is this is the part that you need to get a certificate for. And it's just really simple. A lot of other countries around the world have really draconian laws or you know, stuff that kind of convoluted and, and contradicts each other. Um, whereas our laws are pretty easy and most of the time I don't need to fly outside of the rules they've already given us. It's only, you know, when it's dark or when I'm closer to the airport. And so I've gone and got the certificate that allows me to fly closer to the airports and that's all I need to do my job. And so it just it just means that there's a process, there's a way that they can charge people. Actually, someone just the other day, two days ago, down in South Island, um, flew his drone around a, a bushfire where there were sort of half a dozen helicopters trying to put it out. They had to ground the helicopters. So the police turned up and arrested him. And there's laws around why you can't do that. And, and it's sad to see that people will sell a drone at a store without trying to make sure that the person buying it knows what the law is. But at the same time, the law is there and there's a big community of us who abide by those rules and work together because every video that goes on YouTube of a drone crashing hurts our industry because it just feeds into that fear that people think they have about drones. Indeed. So yeah. if I understand correctly, in New Zealand, there isn't much, as long as you follow the rules, whether you're flying for recreation or commercially doesn't make a lot of a difference because here in Italy you can fly recreationally and it's all fine you don't need any certification or anything but if you want to sell one photo that you took with a drone you need to spend thousands of euros to get the certification yeah it just doesn't yeah. make and much sense that's that's that draconian thing that okay. I mentioned earlier um it's 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 a silly distinction to make it between making money and not making money because half the time I'm not making money anyway. You know, like it's, it's just one of those things where it, 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 that's not where you want to make it. Our, our authority has made the distinction between safety and not safe, safe and not safe is where, where they draw the line. And that's what the, the civil aviation authority is all about. When they have rules about not being able to fly over someone else's property it's not because of privacy, it's because the drone could literally fall on you and kill you. So it's not around privacy laws that you can then take someone to court. It's only around safety. So they, they've built this whole idea around safety. And if you're making money or not making money, that's not going to make a difference to the guy who has a drone land on his head. Um, and so that then allows you to build rules around safety rather than penalizing the people who are actually using it properly the guys who are making money from drones will be the safest flyers in the world 
right. the people who buy a drone and put a battery in it and fly it recreationally are the most dangerous people ever. So it's a silly way to, to make that distinction. It's, it's far more simple to make it around safety. And that way, in our local councils in my city, you can fly any drone up to one and a half kilograms at any council park. Now, I have the Inspire 2, which is 3.3 kilograms, um, and so that's way heavy, so I can't fly it. Now, that makes more sense to me than, well, I'm not making any money from this job, so I'll put up my 20-kilogram thing carrying a red camera, and I'll just drop it on someone and kill them, and, oh, well, sorry, I was just having fun. It doesn't make any sense. So the the safety rules are all around, uh, it's what it's all about, and that does provide annoying things such as if I need to, to photograph a house, I need to be on an angle to that house, which means I'm going to be over someone else's property. So I literally have to go and do a mail drop and alert everyone in the neighborhood that I'm going to be flying my drone on this day. Um, and that's, that's where the law that we currently have becomes really difficult because you're trying to make a quick buck uh, or a safe and secure buck by being a real estate photographer for example, but you need to actually go knocking on doors and, and asking permission and someone can just say no and then you can't fly over their property. So then you have to map out which properties you can fly over and it just becomes really difficult. But at least it's clever and it's got nothing to do with how much money you're making. It's simply a safety issue. Yeah, I mean, that that sure seems to make sense. Um, you know, oh, it, before I forget, I, I was at that, uh, the Trey Ratcliffe uh, tour in <laughs> Chicago. So oh, it's, nice. it's possible that we might have met there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, you'd mentioned what kind of gear you're using uh, with your aerial work. Tell us about that. And, uh, you know, is this still a good time to get into drone photography and video? Oh, for sure, for sure. I, I mean, until it's saturated, then then there's still a good time to do it. And I, and I actually think that it's always going to be a good time because it, it's it's now a tool in my kit that I have for my clients. Um, when they find out I can do drones, they a are a little bit surprised, but b it's probably because they've just never really thought of that. Um, and so it, it just shows, especially where I am, it's still a very young market. Um, and so that's a great market to be in as a young market. So. What gear do I use? I use the Inspire 2, um, and the reason I do that is because, yeah, I could buy a bigger drone that could hold a bigger camera, but the number of times I need that is so few and far between that I don't actually think it's worth the money. Um, I think what you need to do if you're going to use drones to make money is actually do some market research. In fact, that applies to any business idea. Um, so for me, the best idea is to have the Inspire 2 because if I get a client who comes along and says, oh, we need it for a TV commercial, we need the, the more expensive, better quality camera, I just hire that camera. Um, and it literally doubled the price of, of purchasing the, the drone. So it made no sense for me to spend all that money up front and only use it every so often. So the, the, the interchangeability of the two cameras that the Inspire range has means that I can, if I need to, hire a camera that I can change the lenses on and shoot raw. And if I don't need to, then I don't need to spend that money up front. And most of my clients are happy with just what I give them off the, the bulk standard camera that it comes with. So that's why I've gone down that route. There are other people who need bigger cameras or who need a smaller form factor. So some of those other smaller drones would work better. Indoors, you want to use the Phantom rather than the Inspire. The Phantom's a lot easier and it bounces more when you when you crash it. <laughs> but um, 
the Inspire is great for me outdoors because it, it can hold up to the winds and the airport is a very windy place. So um, it, it works really well in, in the high wind. So that's why I use that. And then for my other gear, I use Canon DSLRs simply because I always have. Um, but I'm kind of on the verge of, you know, maybe a mirrorless would do exactly what I need without having to worry about um, that, that massive DSLR body. But I'm still with that at the moment. And then the video cameras I have are the Sony the Sony range. I've got a, a FS700 for the high speed. It does 240 frames per second. Um, and I can also use an external recorder to get 2K RAW or 4K RAW. So this, it gives me a, a really good gamut of, of what I can produce with that camera. And then I've just got a, a Sony Z150 Handycam. And that's for the, the moments where I don't want to have to worry about lens choice. Um, and I don't want to have to worry about microphones. I can just pick it, grab it and run. So there's a wide range of tools. And what I've learned is that that use the tools that fit the job, that, that fit your requirement. Yes, my DSLRs shoot video, and yes, that's how I got into video, but actually they're cumbersome to use. They chew through battery power. They get really hot. Um, they stop after 29 minutes and 59 seconds. There's all sorts of drawbacks. So if I need a small camera in a small space, I can use a DSLR. If I need a good video camera, I'll use the Sony. So that, that's kind of my thinking. What percentage of all that gear are you bringing on this big <laughs> adventure to uh, to look for uh, in Micronesia? Sadly, a high percentage. Um, <laughs> the, um, the 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 team leader guy, he's going to be bringing a couple of um, GoPros and his small Mavic, which is that uh, DJI drone that you can fold up and stick in your backpack. Um, but it's kind of just as backup um, and just so that if I lost all my gear on the way to the island, then we'd have something to shoot with. Um, but I'm going to bring both the video cameras, probably only one of the DSLRs. I've, I've got three, but two of them I use mainly just either as a backup body or for time lapse. Um, so I'll just probably keep that down. But obviously the, the FS700, I use my Canon lenses with it. So I've got to take all my lenses um, some sound gear because we're going to do interviews, um, probably one light because I'll, I'll need light at some point. Uh, and then I've got to take my drone. And we're just looking into ideas. Originally, he had wanted me to bring my Ronin, which is that massive stabilizer. Um, but it's just getting gear to this place is going to be so difficult that I think we're going to probably go something more handheld like an Osmo. But um, there's going to be a lot of gear and a lot of batteries and a lot of battery charges. And that's that's the biggest stress about this whole trip is getting it there safely and actually being allowed to take those batteries with us. So that's, that's our biggest well, will that Will that involve like climbing mountains, crossing the jungle, kind of crossing rivers? Yeah, um, not really. Uh, luckily, we're staying at a nice location on the main island at Truk. And then we every morning get up and jump in a boat and go for 40 minutes. And when we get there, it's a 10-minute walk. So it's not climbing through jungles and having to hike and, and do all that kind of Sherpa stuff. It's it's a little inconvenient, but really I've done jobs that were a lot more inconvenient than that. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the fact that it's fairly easy. It's just going to be really hot and like heat management, battery management, storage management, it's going to be quite high on your list of priorities. And and in amongst that, you're digging for 15 bodies that have been missing for 80 years. So it's quite it's quite an interesting project. 
Ugo, let me ask you, uh, you know, we did our episode on drones when you first got yours a few months back. Uh, how much are you using that nowadays? Are you still getting out with it? No, unfortunately, not very much. I, I actually tried to do it, to use it, uh, was that a week ago, last week? And, you know, I'm using my iPhone 6 still. I still got an iPhone 6, a bit of luddite in this. And, you know, with the latest, uh, uh, let's call it scandal that happened with uh, Apple slowing down all devices in order to save battery and so on, what happened is that I found out that my iPhone 6 is not good enough anymore. It, it just, the, the video, the video feed is all lagging by and, and jumping around. So I could not even see where I was going. I had just to, to fly a few meters out, and then I realized I was not seeing what I what drone was actually seeing, only delayed by a few seconds or frozen. So I said, okay, maybe I'll, I'll better come back, land, and see if I can. So I'm actually thinking of getting another device uh, to fly. Otherwise, it would not be a, a good experience. Interesting. Okay, I was wondering about that. <laughs> and you? So... Uh, well, yeah, I bought uh, I bought a drone this past summer, so it's been at least six, seven months now. I barely got it out of the box. I uh, have never gotten it in the air. <laughs> well, <laughs> but but I had some uh, some serious travel that uh, to countries that I wasn't uh, sure about their laws, and I just didn't want to chance it. Uh, countries like India where um, it's, it's fairly common knowledge that uh, they could, you know, seize it or, you know, to at least keep it. Uh, so I just didn't want to deal with that. So the thing sits nice and uh, clean in its box, but I, I promise that I will get it out one of these days. <laughs> well, I think that's a very, very wise decision to leave that at home because you could make it 90% 90 90 of the way around the world and then in that last bit have it taken off you and then it's not, not worth it. <laughs> so exactly. right. I, I recently went to Oman, as you know, and I decided not to bring my drone there because apparently it's, uh, it's not legal to fly drones there. But when I was there in a... Uh, in a city called Nahal, where there is this ancient fort, and I was there visiting the fort, and heard a little buzzing noise, and just above my head there was a little Mavic. <laughs> I, said, okay. <coughs> I wish I had known. So the, yeah. two guys with motorbikes from Norway or something, they just had the, the Mavic in the backpack, they stopped there on the motorbikes, flew the drone around for a few minutes, and then went on their way. <laughs> Good. Um, so we uh, talked earlier about uh, the, your documentary, The Virtually Famous. How can someone become virtually famous nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> uh, good question. Yeah, so basically the, the hark back to virtually famous is that my brand, which was Photo NZ Limited, NZ Limited, um, for all you Americans, um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it was hard to operate that as a brand because it wasn't overly interesting in new zealand the the copyright law means that if it's a place name or a generic term then you can't you can't copyright your brand so i couldn't take my logo and copyright it because my logo was a word which was photo nz and it was a, a thing and a place and you can't copyright that so i had been looking for a while at um 
ideas around what I could rebrand myself as. And then I got a grant for $5,000 to do some overseas study. And that's from the, the professional institute here in New Zealand. And with that, I went to NAB in uh, Las Vegas to interview a whole bunch of people who had become famous through the internet. Because it was interesting to me, especially from New Zealand, so far away from the rest of the world, how at that time, 2011, 2012, in fact, the idea came in 2010, um, there were already people who were making money out of being famous from being on the internet. And that kind of intrigued me. So I decided to go and interview a whole bunch of people. Um, Philip Bloom is a, a videographer and photographer out of England, and I had followed him for a while. So I ended up going to England and interviewing him as well. And then a, a guy called Nino Leitner from uh, Vienna, and he was teaching people videography with the DSLRs. And so I just, I went to people who influenced me and I sat down and interviewed them and asked them um, things about how they had used the internet. And it was simply for a presentation back to my institute at the end of, the, of that um, period that I'd had the grant for. Um, and so I, I sat down with Jeremy Cowart on the streets of um, Santa Monica and talked to him about his Help Portrait project. And if you don't know about Help Portrait, basically he once a year has this massive project where photographers give their time for free to take photos of people who would potentially never, ever get that opportunity to pay for a photographer or the, the homeless people or the needy people or just the, the solo mums of six children who have never had a family portrait, that kind of idea. And and that really resonated with me too because he he had influenced people all over the world with this simple idea of giving your photography away for free on a day. Um, and so I sat down with him and interviewed him and the whole project I, I wrapped up in this idea of virtually famous because it was a play on the words of, you know, are you actually famous or are you kind of just a little bit famous? Um, and then using that virtual world to become famous. And, and so that's kind of that play. And then in the process of creating this presentation, I came up with that name and thought, actually, that's really cool. I like that. And so I took that on as my brand. So that's the brand that I, that I trade under now. Um, and the photo NZ limited is just the, 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 the legal entity, but it was a really interesting way. And that was actually how I met Trey Ratcliffe. I, um, was flying to Queenstown, which is the place where most of Lord of the Rings was, was filmed, um, kind of, and a guy next to me on the plane who I was traveling with in order to interview him for this documentary was a, a Kiwi photographer. And he wanted to be filmed in his hometown of, of Queenstown. So we were flying there and I was a little bit, I had to pay for all of this because it was all out of my own pocket. And so I was a little bit grumpy about that. But he said to me, oh, have you heard Trey Ratcliffe's in town? And I was like, who? <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's a, he's a travel photographer. He does HDR. And I'm like, no, I don't know anything about him. So I jumped out of the plane, but he told me how famous he was. I jumped out of the plane in Queenstown and I sent him a tweet. I said, hey, Trey, um, I'm in Queenstown for a couple of days, would love to interview you for a project I'm doing on, you know, being an internet celebrity. And literally an hour later, I got a tweet back from someone who at that time probably had eight or 10 million followers um, saying, sure, come, I'll meet you at this cafe at four o'clock. And I was like, okay. And I didn't know at the time how much of a big deal that was in the sense of, you know, I then went on a trip with Trey and everywhere we went, he had 250 people around him. So 
the ability to to and and the interesting part for me was the fact that I used social media to get in touch with this really famous guy who then gave me an interview for my documentary about social media. So it was a really interesting project to be involved with, and I'd love actually now to to kind of revisit that, go back and and interview the people I interviewed in 2012, and say, okay, it's like six years later now. Um, how has the internet changed your life and actually then produce a, a proper documentary that I could maybe put on a network somewhere and just like, just for interest sake, that would be really fun. Yeah, I think that would be interesting to follow up with those people and see who still is famous, who's more famous, who's burned out or, mm. or done whatever happens to those people. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we're winding down our interview here. This has been wonderful. Uh, tell us where more people can find out more about you online, Ollie. Sure. So my um, my website that I use for my clients is virtuallyfamous.co.nz, but I believe, I haven't tested it lately, I think you can go to the .com and it will take you there. Um, but if you want to follow my Instagram, um, it's just Ollie Dale, O-L-L-I-E-D-A-L-E. Um, and that's the same for Twitter as well. So um, <clears throat> very, very happy on Instagram and Twitter to to friend anyone because that's quite fun. Facebook I tend to use just for people I've met um, because I do a lot of personal stuff, photos of my kids and things, which I don't think everyone in the world needs to see. But, um, yeah, just follow me at Ollie Dale on Instagram and Twitter. Great. Right. And uh, it's, it's been really fun talking to you and especially looking forward to, to see what you can find on Truk Island yeah. in the next month or so. It would be fun to see if actually it was a conspiracy. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's nice. I mean, conspiracies that are actually true are more interesting than ones that are not. So. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Ali. This was wonderful. And uh, good luck in your uh, travels. And uh, keep us posted on how that uh, how that goes on uh, Chuck Island, okay? Yeah, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. And, and I appreciate what you do for the photographic community. It's great to have this all this content that you create. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. Pleasure, pleasure. Well, uh, this has been Ralph Velasco and Ugo Che. You can find out more about me at photoenrichment.com. You can follow me on all the social media networks at Ralph Velasco and at photoenrichment. And you can certainly look for Ugo all over the internet uh, at uh, ucphoto.me or simply Google his name. Uh, Anything else to add to that, Ugo? Uh, no, not really. Just that when this episode airs, I'll be in uh, Beijing, China for uh, a week of work. And then I'm off to Venice for my first workshop of the year at the Carnival of Venice. So it's going to be a busy January and the beginning of February is going to be a busy month travel-wise for me. Uh, but I'm, I'll make sure we, we have an episode out every week as usual. Yes, you're doing a great job with that. And if I could just uh, put a quick plug in, I've got a couple more spots left on uh, two Cuba trips that I have coming up in March. So March 10th through the 17th and March 18th through the 25th. Uh, Again, just photoenrichment.com or you can email me, uh, ralph at photoenrichment.com for more information. But uh, get there now. (laughs) One more thing. uh, All the show notes for the links for this episode will be available at ttim.photo slash 111. 
111. And if you like the show and you want to pay it back, you can just uh, the best thing that you can do uh, is to share our episodes with your friends and followers and uh, follow us online, our various Twitter and Facebook pages and, and whatever. Just Google the traveling image makers. You will find everything. Thank you. And do give us a like on Facebook and uh, follow our community there. And please uh, be sure to enter our photo contest. Sure. Uh, and for that, yeah, we have a Facebook group. At, uh, you can get there easily via ttim.photo slash Facebook. And you get a chance to be invited on the show just by submitting uh, one of your favorite travel photos. Okay. All right. Now let's get out and shoot. <laughs>